Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I hope uh, that you have a good chance today to bless your mother today. I know that later today I'll be able to do that with my mom. And, you know, mom, if you're watching, I guess that means you laid out of church, and that's bad. But uh, happy Mother's Day, you know. Um, I'm always thankful on Mother's Day for one thing in particular every time, and that's that my mother really is responsible for leading me to Christ. It was when I started having questions about the gospel that my mother began to share some scriptures out of the book of Romans, which I would later learn as the Romans road. And she began to teach our family those scriptures about sin and salvation and the gift that comes from God through Christ. And that's ultimately what, uh, led me to Christ, was memorizing those scriptures. I'm really grateful for that. And, you know, if you're a mom today, a grandmom today, you have uh, children or grandchildren, I would just remind you, you still have an opportunity to bless your children with the gospel today. You have that chance to do that and to uh, just be able to drip the gospel day by day, little by little, as you go, so that they come to know Christ and influence them. Uh, I had the unique, and I guess you would almost call it an unfortunate privilege, of uh, doing a funeral for a good friend this past week. And as Kathy and I reflected on her life, uh, I was surprised that I had been asked to do this funeral because this is uh, somebody that I had not been around in a long time. Uh, I'd been part of a church that I had served many, many years ago. And uh, yet, as we were talking about that, Kathy said, you know, I, I imagine that one of the reasons that they wanted you to do this funeral is it was one last time to present the gospel to the family. And it was a privilege to be able to do that. The gospel is a privilege, isn't it? And Paul tells us we shouldn't be ashamed of it. He wasn't ashamed of it. And I hope you'll influence your family for that today. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope that you do, I hope that you'll open them to the book of Ephesians. If you're uncertain where that is, at the front of your Bible, it will have an index that will tell you what page you can turn to. If that just feels like too much work on Mother's Day, just look at the screen in a second. It'll be there. Um, but we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. The reason that I tell you to bring your Bibles, and I really encourage you to do that and not look at your phone uh, or an iPad or something like that, is I think there's just something really important about not being distracted when we're in the worship space. Uh, I read the Bible on my phone too, and I use Google to cross-reference scriptures all the time. It's great to be able to do that. But there's something really important about being kind of laser focused in on what God might have for us. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter two. Now you remember uh, that we were there last week, but this week we're looking at one particular verse. I'm going to read a couple of verses prior to that just to remind us of where we've been. And we're going to do something a little bit different. In fact, we haven't done this. I don't know that we've ever done this uh, like this today. But you're going to get a two-part sermon today, and I don't mean like I've been telling you like we're extending next week, we're just going to be in one verse. I know some of you are like, thank God. You know, we just kind of seem to be stuck right here, but we're going to have a two-part sermon today because I'm going to do the first half and set this up, and then Pastor Kirk is going to come and do the second half, and we're doing that because of something that happened actually many years ago. Uh, We studied the book of Ephesians. Many of you would remember, if you've been here, kind of if you're Judson Lifers, you would remember this, is that we studied the book of Ephesians probably 12 or 13 years ago uh, here on Sunday mornings, went through it uh, in a time frame where my father was the pastor. And as he was studying and going through this, God kind of spoke through some of those sermons and gave Kirk, I think, what's a really valuable insight for the church, particularly with the verse that we're looking at today. And I think it's important for you to see it because it's going to be a different perspective 
And it's often a perspective uh, that I miss. Uh, and I think that's, that's really important that we hear different things. You know, I'm, it's not lost on me that after a while I start to sound like the Charlie Brown teacher to you folks. Like wah, 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 you know. And, and you, you don't listen. You think that you're listening, but you're really not. And so it's important to hear a different perspective. And we're going to do that. So there'll be kind of a handoff here in just a few minutes. But, uh, you know, we kind of had actually talked about doing like just a whole swap where I would lead the music. John Hammond said, let me hear you count to four. And I went like one, two, three, four. And he's like, see, you can't even count in time. You, sorry, you're out. Uh, so we, we're not going to have you. Drummer, drummer vetoed me on that one. So anyway, last week we looked at two of the, I guess, arguably the most famous verses from this book or the most well-known verses from this book. And that was verses eight and nine. I just want to read them again from chapter two of the book of Ephesians. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Now, when we read these verses, I think we're bound to see several things that become very, very important for us. And, and we talked about this last week, but first is that salvation comes to us from God. It's a- absolutely nothing that we have done. It was God's work in our lives. We receive it by faith. And we see that it comes through grace. When we talk about God's grace... You remember that we talked about that was God's favor being given to us. That's, that's unmerited. You didn't do anything. God didn't look at you and say, oh, man, I'm so lucky. I found somebody. This is going to be great. Let's get them on the team. It wasn't like that at all. It was God seeing us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. He wasn't waiting on us to figure it out. God's plan of redemption moved towards us. And that's what it means that we were saved by grace. Uh, We're not saved by being religious or keeping a standard or or just doing all the right things. It's never available to us that way. It's through God's grace. And then we understand that because Christ died in our place, we have to receive that by faith. Now, we've talked about this in a couple of different ways, but faith, that acronym, forsaking all I trust him, faith. You could, you could look at it that way. We talked about faith, though, as, as being pictured for us with you have to have your head, your heart, and your hands together. They have to move in unison together. Do you remember we used that kind of in the marriage illustration last week? Head, you have to know something. That, that there has to be a recognition that Jesus Christ is the narrow way to salvation, that he's the only way, and that there is sin in your life that has separated you from God the Father. You, you have to know that. There has to be a movement of your heart towards repentance, a change of direction where you say, I'm not walking after what I have been walking after in the past. I'm turning and going in a different direction. I'm following Christ. Your heart is moved with godly sorrow towards repentance. And then we talked about your hands obeying the Lord. So it's head, heart. (laughs) That about messed me up. I thought I said hands, heart, and head. You know, that would, do y'all ever do that? You know, it's that kind of thing. Head, heart, hands, moving in unison together. It has to work that way or else we haven't experienced faith. Now, because of God's work, we learned that no one can boast. And the reason is because I think the apostle writes this to us. It's really easy for us to start boasting. Even after we're believers, it's really easy for us to get to that place in our lives where we start to kind of think back on that and we forget that it was God's grace. And we start to think a little more highly of ourselves than we should. The apostle never lost that. Remember when he says about himself, you know, we're all sinners. In fact, I'm the chief sinner. I'm I'm the biggest. That's who I was before God met me. I was chief among all sinners. That's who we were living in darkness. And what we begin to see then 
is that God isn't just done with us there. He saved us by grace and he holds us in his grace. And that's where verse 10 comes in and becomes very important for us to see the life that we're about to live in Christ. So verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So not only saved by grace through faith, meaning it's God's work in our lives, but kept by grace through faith in salvation until the day of Christ Jesus or the day that he calls us home and we pass from this life into the next through death. So as he talks about this, he's saying something really good that we need to understand. Salvation was the start of God's amazing work in your life and in my life. It wasn't the culmination of everything. It was really the start of it. When God saved us, he's now refining us and he's doing a work in our lives. And in fact, the apostles spoke about this in a book that follows this book in Ephesians, in the book of Philippians. He's writing to a different church, the church at Philippi. And he says something that sounds very familiar if you're listening and kind of reading this verse, they, they almost seem like they're almost the same. They're very similar, but they're not the same. I want to read this for you from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's that great verse out of Philippians when he's writing to that church and he says, listen, I'm glad we've been able to partner in the gospel together. I'm glad we're on the same team. And I'm sure about your church and your life that what God started in you, he's going to be faithful to complete. Again, there's some similarities in these verses, and I want to I show you those similarities, but then I want to show you the differences in these verses as well, because they are different. So the similarities of these verses would be this. He's stating that God is doing the work. I think oftentimes we forget that. It's just, it's just hard for us to imagine that really God is doing the work. You know, in our culture today, when people mess up, they begin to say something like this. I realize I have work to do. And I need to do better. That sounds good, doesn't it? Like, I, I have some work to do. And we talk about work on yourself. Work, work on yourself to become better. But that really is a little bit kind of at odds with what the Christian life says God is doing in our lives. Because it's God's work to refine us. It's our work to yield to the Holy Spirit. It's our work to yield to what God is doing in our lives. But God is always the actor. Now, that, that shouldn't come as a surprise to you. Because we spent the entire time that we looked at chapter 1 talking about how God was the actor in every one of those verses. All of those spiritual blessings that we had in Christ, they come from God. God was doing this through Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. That's every spiritual blessing. If you missed those messages, you go back and listen to them online. Or you can just take what I just told you and read through Ephesians chapter 1 again. And you will see it's always God working through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as God's working to complete the work of salvation in our lives, to complete the refining process of sanctification. And that, that's just a big word, sanctification. That means that we're becoming more like Christ. That, that's what that means. So when God saves you, he starts the work. He continues the work. The rest of your time here on earth, he's working so that you become more like Christ. The result is holiness in your life. And so he says, I'm working here. I'm doing this. It's not I promise to do better. I'll work harder. It's not, it's not that. It's me yielding to the work 
of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians, he's also reminding a group of believers about this by saying God started something in your life and he isn't finished. Aren't you glad that God's not finished with you just yet? I'm really glad. I'm really grateful that God doesn't just say, like a lot of people think he does, well, you know, God's just this kind of omnipotent force in the world and, and we know that he's there and, and he kind of directs things, but he steps back from us. That's not true at all. God is absolutely involved in the minutia of your life. He's involved in all parts of your life. He's wanting to make you into something spectacular, and that's holy. He's wanting to make you different. And so he doesn't just save us and say, good luck. Hope things go well for you. No, he says, I'm glad that you're saved. Now, I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to change you little by little. I'm going to make you more and more like Christ. I'm going to put the life of Christ in you. Now, in the same way, we see this in the book of Ephesians, don't we? We see that God's working in our lives to make us something. But he also says that God's working to do something in our lives that happened before time began. Did you notice that? He said you were created to do these good works God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, I just told you a minute ago that all this wasn't about works. Does it feel like I'm contradicting myself? Because I'm not. Why could it not be about works when we're saved, but then there are works that we should do? One of the things I was thinking about as I drove in this morning is that the Bible is masterful in making sure you don't run to extremes. For instance, there are people that say, well, it's all about the works. And he says, no, it's, it's by grace that you've been saved. But then when we read James, what does James say? No, 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 I'm going to show you my faith by my works. But he didn't say, I'm going to show you how to get faith by working for it. There's a difference, isn't there? Once we're saved, God begins to make us holy. We become like Christ. Well, Christ didn't just sit around when he was here on earth. Jesus didn't just hang out. He was working for the Father. He was doing the Father's will, the Father's bidding. He's following the Father's will, and we're doing the same thing. And so we can't begin to do good works until God has changed our hearts to be like his. And he's done that in Christ. The word work in Philippians sounds similar to the word workmanship in Ephesians, but it's actually quite different. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Pastor Kirk will give you kind of the main thrust of this. But here's an important thing that you need to understand. In Philippians, he's talking about a deed, an activity that God did in your life. Salvation. He did this. When we think about workmanship, when you add S-H-I-P to the end of something like that, like craftsmanship, it's not just that somebody slaps something together, is it? It's art. There, there's something being done. It's masterful. It's skillful what God's doing. Well, what is he saying God's doing? He's saying that God's doing something and creating a people for himself. He wanted this, and God has always wanted this. You remember when he called Abraham out of darkness, out of idolatry? He was making a people for himself, and that culminates at the cross. You may remember that we spent a lot of time talking about a couple of verses in chapter 1 where Paul said, we and you. What was he talking about? We, the Jews, and you, the Gentiles, brought together in oneness at the cross. God creating a people for himself to do what? Good works. That's the thing. God was doing something in Jesus that was going to last for all eternity. And it didn't matter anymore if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Now, we should all say amen to that. Praise God 
that it didn't matter anymore, that we're part of God's family. At the cross, he's creating this people for himself. And what Paul is telling these believers is that as God's plan unfolds, it's now unfolding fully and we understand it, that we're not just created to be a people who sit. I think that sometimes we've missed that. We're happy that we're saved. I'm, I'm grateful I'm saved. I'm grateful my family's saved. But that's it. That misses the point of this verse. God's creating something in you to do something. That you would do something. That you would do good works. That you would be a living testimony to the lost world as you live your life on purpose, on mission, doing the things that Christ did. Christ met people where they were at in their need. He proclaimed the gospel. He fed people when they were hungry. He, he met their, their physical maladies and healed them. He did those things. And we have this opportunity to step into people's lives and do the exact same thing. I think that's the terrible misconception of the modern church. It's almost as if we kind of live with this misunderstanding that God just saved us for the purpose of saving us. Well, here's what God did. God saved us from something, ourselves, to something, good works. God put Christ in you so that you would be on mission for him and you could serve him in relationship. And now that we're in that relationship, we're actually ready and able finally to do good works because we understand what God desires for us. We understand that we know him in a way that we couldn't have known him before. And because of that, he's changed our hearts to be like his. Pastor Kirk, come and lead us. Pastor Jeff, thank you for allowing me this opportunity. I want you to know how honored I feel. Um, I'm on this platform a lot, so some of you may think, oh, that's no big deal to him, but it is a big deal to me to get to stand here and be in this pulpit. And... Um, for you to be willing to share this this time, uh, Jeff's right. You know, how many of you were here twelve plus years ago with me? Um, I was. I remember being in the gym actually, and when your dad Gene was preaching, and he preached this verse, and I remember being in the gymnasium at a moment where he mentioned the word workmanship in verse ten and what that meant in the Greek, and that really got my brain turning. Was anybody with us? That anybody remember those times, those days when we were going through? I know it. It was powerful for me, and um, there's something that happened. I think it's because I am a creative person. I am an artistic person. Uh, some of you don't know this, but maybe a lot of you don't know this, but growing up, I really wanted to be an artist. I, I drew a lot and painted and uh, enjoyed that very much and thought I was on a track to do that in college and uh, be a graphic designer or something, maybe even an architect, thought about all those things, and then God turned my life and, and led me back towards music as a career. So I'm grateful for that. But art has always been important to me and has always moved me. And so when Pastor Gene started talking about this word workmanship and what it means, it just began to really uh, spark some ideas in my mind. Uh, you'll see this word up here. That doesn't look like an English word, does it, on the screen there? I want you to say it with me, though. It's pronounced poiema. Say that. Yeah. So uh, if you were here when Gene taught this, you'll, you'll remember this, but this word poiema is the word for workmanship in verse 10 here when Paul says, uh, we are God's workmanship. We are his poiema. And that word really means in the Greek work of art. It means, and now it looks a lot like our English word poem, doesn't it? So it's immediately, you can make that connection. But in fact, it means more than that. To the Greeks, poetry was the highest form of art. Now that surprised me when I researched that because uh, I think of other things as more interesting or more fascinating 
stimulating, uh, certainly more visually stimulating, right? Poetry is just an audible art. Um, but the reason, this is really cool, the reason why the Greeks loved poetry and, and esteemed it so highly is because they thought, well, when you paint, you take a canvas that someone else has made and you take paints that someone else has created and mixed up and, and the artist just puts those elements together and tries to make something beautiful. Or when you sculpt, you take a big raw uh, material, a block of stone or marble, and you, and you carve something or, or out of wood or you chip away um, something to make something beautiful out of stone. So you're, you're using materials that you can find that are readily available around you. But poetry is creating something out of nothing. That's what the Greeks would say. They would say it's pure imagination. It's your ability to come up with an idea and then manifest it in words and maybe write it down, but probably just uh, uh, declare it, recite it, and say it in such a way that is beautiful and attractive to people and, and conveys ideas. And so that's why they held it up as such a high art. Well, that matches perfectly, doesn't it, with us today when we say that we are God's poema, that we're his work of art, that we're like a poem. He is creating something, just as Jeff's referred to, in his sovereignty, he has saved us in salvation he is creating something out of nothing we were dead in our sins and trespasses we had no life right and so God is creating life where there was no life he is making something out of nothing we see that in creation in Genesis 1 as he created the universe God is this amazing artist and and really Paul I think is referencing back to that to God's creative power to his ability to make something beautiful out of nothing so I want to tell you this morning, you are beautiful. How do you feel about that? Some of you are like me, and in the morning you get up and you shuffle past the mirror and you might catch a glimpse. And if you're like me, you don't look in the mirror and go, you're quite the work of art, Kirk. You are a masterpiece. I don't do that. Do you do that? If you do, that's probably another set of issues we ought to talk about. That's... Um, I don't often uh, catch myself in the mirror and think things like that, and I bet you don't either. But you know what? Even more so, I don't look into my own heart and, and see the sinfulness and my own tendencies and my own uh, tendencies to walk away from the will of God and to do things just that my flesh wants to do. I don't look at my heart very often and think, oh, wow, what a masterpiece either. What a work of art. In fact, most of the time I think, what a piece of work. <laughs> How about you? And yet God is the one who in his creative genius can take that and make something beautiful. You are beautiful. God is making you to be a work of art and only in the hands of God can we do that. You notice the picture here is uh, an image of the painting, part of the painting of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Anybody know the artist? You could say it. Michelangelo, right? So Michelangelo painted this. It took him four years to paint the whole ceiling. But this, this small part of this uh, painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome actually depicts creation. So who, what you see here on our right is God uh, reaching down and, and giving life to Adam. And uh, many of you recognize that. It's a famous painting, of course, by a, a famous artist. Michelangelo was an Italian Renaissance artist in the 1500s. And... Um, did some incredible works and was well known not just for painting but for other arts as we'll see as we continue and this idea of poema I liked to use this image because it, it reminds us as Jeff has said just a moment ago that God is the artist that he is the creator that he is the one that brings beauty out of ashes he's the one that creates something out of nothing he did it in creation and Paul says here he does it in salvation he does it in your life and in my life but I don't want us to miss the fact that Paul here says, we 
are his workmanship. Do you notice that in verse 10? Notice in verse eight, eight, uh, verses eight and nine, he has said, you, you have been saved by grace through faith. That's true of the individual. That's true of all of us. God's work of beauty is happening in each and every life where salvation occurs. That's beautiful. That's a masterpiece, a work of art in itself. But then notice that Paul turns it in verse 10 and says, for we are his workmanship. So lest we get a little distracted and, and think that it's all about our personal beauty or our personal holiness or only about our personal salvation, Paul says it's not. The great work of art, the great masterpiece is when he takes your life and makes something beautiful out of it and my life and makes something beautiful out of that and then he puts those things together. It's like a, we're each a tile, a beautiful, shiny, colorful tile that he puts together in a mosaic. And that grand and glorious masterpiece is the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. And it's this beautiful masterpiece that God is busy making one heart, one life at a time. He's doing that magnificent work in you. He's doing it in me. And then when we come together, we are a beautiful tapestry, if you will, that is woven together by God. You might even think of it in terms of a choir. I like to think in musical terms. You know, all the people in the choir aren't necessarily soloists that you would want to hear sing a solo, right? You ever thought about that? Not every person in a choir necessarily wants to be up in front and sing by themselves. But when you put all those, those talents and those individual abilities together, it makes something magnificent. Same with an orchestra. All those individual instruments come together to make something beautiful. That's what God is doing. And it's something that only God can do. So we're reminded of that. Secondly, though, I want to move to the next slide. I'm going to uh, talk about the process. The process of sanctification. Jeff's already mentioned that. Art, great art, takes time. I mentioned that the Sistine Chapel took Michelangelo four years to complete. That's incredible to think about every day, going to that same painting, that same chapel ceiling, and having to lay on his back and, and paint like that. Uh, and also it was fresco, which if you know anything about that process, it's even crazier. You had to put wet plaster and then paint, and it was only a certain amount of time you had. <clears throat> really incredible. And the process is so important if you're ever involved in artistic endeavor. He says uh, in verse 10 here that we are created in Christ Jesus. It has this implication of an ongoing process. Justification and salvation, being made right with God, takes a moment when we place our faith and trust in Christ. But sanctification takes place over a lifetime, doesn't it? And if we're all honest, it's happening. And, and I'm grateful it's still happening. God hasn't given up on us. And uh, I'm so grateful for that. I know you are. But we need to remember that this process is important to God. Uh, God loves process. He created time. Think about that. God exists outside of time as we know it. And he created the time that we have. When you watch uh, creation, you watch nature, you watch a plant grow, you watch a tree bring forth fruit in its season, you'll see how much God loves process. He loves for things to take time. One of the things I think we've lost the most in this generation in our society is this instant culture we have, you know, where we have every bit of information at our fingertips. We can, we can microwave our food. We can, we can figure out how to do anything on YouTube. I mean, it's not that we can do it well, but we can find out. There's a video for it, right? Uh, we can find out just about anything in an instant. And I don't know that that's the best thing for our minds and our souls and our spirits, Things that, that are really valuable and that are really beautiful in the artistic sense take time. And God is working on us. Do you remember that old song I remember singing when I was a kid? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. You know this? He took six days to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. 
for he's still working on me. Are you grateful for that today? God is still working on us. Thank the Lord that he is. Notice the picture here. This is also uh, a piece of art by Michelangelo. And this is his statue of David. It took him three years uh, to sculpt this particular statue. You can't really tell in this picture, but this statue is 17 feet tall. So I want you to take that in for just a moment. Think about the mind of the artist and what he had to do to get to the point where we see this beautiful statue that represents David from the Bible. Um, First of all, he had to have the idea. Michelangelo was commissioned to do this, to this work. Uh, the church asked him to do it. And so he had to have the idea of David in his mind. I want it to look like this. I want it to be maybe even this big and, and, and to, have, to be at this point in the, in the story in the life of David. This is after he's defeated Goliath. That, that he's holding there over his uh, left shoulder is the sling uh, that he used to defeat Goliath. So... Michelangelo had to have the idea to begin with. Then he had to go and find the material. He had to go find the marble. And if he's thinking, well, I want it to be huge, you know, then he has to find a pe- one piece of marble that he can create this sculpture from. And he had to find that raw material, seek it out, and find something that would work, something that would be beautiful. But it, you can imagine him looking at the slabs of marble and thinking, okay, David's inside one of these. I gotta find, I gotta find the right one. He finds the raw material. He gets it back to the workshop. Uh, with much effort, you can imagine, as big as that must have been. And then he takes three years working every day. And there's actually a, a legendary story that's attributed uh, to Michelangelo that when he finished this work, that he was asked, how did you do this? It's magnificent. It's so huge. It's just glorious. It's beautiful. Uh, how, how, do, how on earth did you conceive of this and get it finished? And Michelangelo answered, well, it was really pretty simple. I found a large enough block of marble, and then I just chipped away everything that didn't look like David. And uh, we, we don't think he actually said that, but it's a great story that helps us understand the heart and the mind of the artist. Because Michelangelo had to see David inside that raw material all along. He had to have that idea in his mind before he ever started. Isn't that the way God is with us? I want to encourage you that I believe it is. I believe that God has in mind exactly who he intends for you to be when you're finished. That beautiful depiction of his grace and his glory. This, God is always about his glory, isn't he? In salvation, it's about his glory. He's redeeming a people unto himself and he's doing it one heart and one soul at a time, you and me, to make that beautiful work of art, that tapestry. And that gives him glory because he's doing what he said he would do and it shows the great and gracious heart of God. In sanctification, he intends to receive his glory. I want us to look at a verse out of Romans uh, chapter eight elsewhere where Paul says, for those he foreknew... Remember, he, the artist think, has the idea in mind beforehand, right? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn, Jesus would be, among many brothers and sisters. In other words, Jesus would be the firstborn and many would come after him that would look like him. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus. That is the process of sanctification, isn't it? God is chipping away at this raw material that you and I are. He's chipping away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. That could be painful sometimes, right? It can be difficult. We might just think, oh, that's a rough edge right there. Thank you, God, for taking care of that. You know, that's getting in the way of my relationships. I really appreciate it. That really helps me for you to get rid of that that little part. Oh, but wait, don't, don't chip that away. That's something I'm really comfortable with. I really like that part of this raw material that I'm made from. Don't, please, God, don't chip that away. And we resist the chisel and the hammer. We don't want him to conform us completely 
sometimes to the image of Christ. But as the artwork, as the work of art, we're to submit to the artist and make sure that God gets the glory for what he's doing in our life. The third thing I want to talk about today is uh, the purpose. Jeff's already mentioned this, that we're saved for a purpose, that we're saved to do good works. That's what Paul says. Look at the verse one more time, verse 10. We are his workmanship, his work of art, his poiema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had the idea. He knows what he wants us to look like when we're finished. He knows the work that he is doing. I'm grateful that it's his work in salvation, that it's his work in sanctification. We're just to yield to him, to give God the glory as the work of art. But now God says, yes, but I want you not only to be something beautiful, I want you to be something useful. Some of the greatest works of art are beautiful and useful. Not to be sat on a shelf to collect dust or to be gazed at, to be admired but to be useful in the hands of our God. That's why we have this image up here uh, behind the purpose. This is another work of Michelangelo. This is St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City in Rome. And I think it's kind of interesting, especially in the Renaissance period, a lot of artists were working for the church and they were doing work for the glory of God. And I think that's perfectly appropriate for us. That's why I picked Michelangelo uh, to use illustrations from, uh, from his artwork today. But this is one of the uh, grandest houses of worship in all the world, one of the most glorious, one of the most beautiful. In fact, if the dome of the, of the basilica looks a little bit familiar, uh, it was actually used as one of the inspirations for the dome of our capital in uh, Washington, D.C. So it, it does have some similarities to that with the ridges on the side and everything. If you notice both of them, you can compare them and see some similarities. So it's, it's been a, a standard of beauty uh, in our world, in the Western world, uh, for centuries And Michelangelo created this work as an architect. Not only was he a painter and a sculptor, but an architect. And in architecture, I think we can see some of the greatest examples of artwork, beauty, uh, pieces of art that are beautiful and useful. If you've ever gone in any great cathedrals, perhaps you've been to Notre Dame in Paris, or maybe you've been even to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., or or, uh, St. Patrick's in New York City, or... Uh, Westminster Abbey, you've seen pictures maybe of that in London. All of these great cathedrals, they always, what do they do? When you walk in, where do you immediately look? Up. Everything like this has been constructed, especially if it's a house of worship, draws your eyes upward. It's always constructed to the glory of God. It's always made so that our eyes turn upward. And really in all of these cases, in in the case of the Sistine Chapel, the sculpture, and now the architecture, we see that they're intended. The artwork, if you gaze long enough at it to appreciate its beauty, you always begin to ponder the artist, don't you? Don't you always begin to wonder who made this? Who, what human had the skill and the ability to create something so beautiful? And that's really what our lives are supposed to do as well. Our lives, the church, as God sanctifies the church, it's supposed to draw people's attention to the artist, to the God of the art, to the one who has made us, to the one who has saved us and is making us pure, is making us holy and sanctifying us. We have been saved unto good works so that the world will see who God is. These works aren't the end unto themselves. Again, it's about the glory of God, right? He has saved us unto his glory. He's sanctifying us for his glory and he wants us to do good works that he's prepared beforehand for us to do for his glory. 
Let's look at one more verse from Philippians chapter two. This is another place where, where Paul has written uh, again to the church at Philippi. And he says this, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. So now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So we see in this verse, again, very parallel to what Paul has said in Ephesians chapter two. He's saying God is working in you. He's doing all of that. Now you have to work it out. No, we're not saved by these works. We're saved for these works. God has intended to reveal who he is in the world today if we will only do the things that he has called us to do. What do those look like for you and for me? Well, they could be any variety of things. But my encouragement to you today is that you're obedient, that I'm obedient to what God has called us to do. We submit to him. We receive his gift of salvation by grace through faith. Then we yield to him as he chips away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And finally, we're, we don't just sit passively, idly by but we get active. I love that Paul in verse 10 says uh, that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Whenever Paul says walk, he means live. He means get moving. Move on. Let's, let's do the things that God has called us to do. Walk in the spirit. Walk in these good works that God has prepared for you to do. If you're wondering, perhaps this morning, if, or if you're ever wondering, what is God up to? What's the will of God? What, what is he trying to do in the world? Well, what we know for sure is that he wants glory. He wants to be seen. He wants to assemble a people and, and draw a people unto himself. So he's busy about the work of salvation and sanctification in the church and in the body of Christ. But he invites us to be creative in the work that he's calling us to do, to represent him well in the world. Now, some of you have just as much trouble believing you're creative as you do believing you're a work of art this morning. Some of you may look in that same mirror and think, well, I'm not a creative person. I mean, that person writes songs or that person draws pictures or that person designs architecture. How am I creative? But I want, you to, I want to dispel that myth today because every one of us are creative. God has put in us imagination and he wants you to employ every creative impulse you have for the sake of his name and his glory. So the question for us today is probably threefold. What is your next step in following Jesus? Is it to respond to God's grace by faith? Maybe you've never done that today and today will be your opportunity to do that in just a moment. We want you to have that chance to do that. Today could be the day that you respond to the, the gift of grace by faith and that you're saved today. Perhaps today as a believer, your response to this is to stop resisting the chisel and the hammer in your life. God's trying to chip away some things. He's trying to make us pure and holy. He's trying to make us to look more like Jesus. We've got to submit to that and let him do it. Or perhaps today, God's spoken something to your heart about a good work that he needs you to do in this world. And it's yours to do. It's ours to do. And we need to respond in obedience. So would you ponder that this morning as we bow our heads in prayer? I want us to do that right now and take just a moment to allow the spirit of God to speak to your heart. Let's every head bowed right now and ask God to to show you what is your next step this morning in obedience.
Father, we're so grateful for your word this morning. We're so grateful for how you teach us, how your spirit continues to guide us down the path of sanctification and to become more like Jesus. And we do long for that, God. We humble ourselves right now before you, asking you to have your way in our heart. Show us, Lord, if our next step is to receive your gift of salvation today. Show us today, Lord, if there's any place in our life where we're resisting your work of sanctification. Anything you want to chip away to help us look more like Jesus. Father, speak to our hearts this morning. What would you have us do in obedience? What good works could we leave this place and do in our city, in our neighborhood? that would be beautiful and useful and would draw people's attention to you as the great artist. Lord, open our eyes that we might see what you would have us to do in this moment. And we will obey you. We love you. We love you, God, and we're grateful for your work, your continuing work in our lives. We respond in faith and we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.